Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. This is a special bonus episode recorded live at the HP Lovecraft Festival Necronomicon 2017. This seminar was recorded in front of a live audience and the topic was Favourite Call of Cthulhu Campaigns. You can find the show notes for this episode, as well as lots of other episodes about Call of Cthulhu, HP Lovecraft, stories and games at blasphemoustomes.com. As with all previous bonus episodes, Patreon backers have not been charged for this episode. Right, hello, good morning. Welcome to day two of Necronomicon Providence 2017. And you are at the Call of Cthulhu Campaigns in Call of Cthulhu panel. If you shouldn't be here, then now is the time to leave. No, don't go. <laughs> but don't go. <laughs> okay, so thanks for coming. Uh, this morning, uh, I'm joined by uh, esteemed panellists that we have. Uh, I will start on my left with Mr. Frecker. Please uh, say who you are and why you're here. Uh, I'm Paul Fricker. I've written for Chaosium uh, for the 7th edition rules and, uh, I don't know, a couple of campaigns. How many, how many, time, how many campaigns have you run as oh, a GM? How many have I run? Uh, I've run Realm of Shadows, I've run Walker in the Waste, probably about four or five. How many have you written? <laughs> probably about four or five. <laughs> okay, that's probably why you're here. Yeah. Okay, Lynn. Um, I'm Lynn Hardy, good morning. Um, I was the line editor and lead writer, chief cook and bottle washer on <laughs> Acton Cthulhu for Modifius for their Kickstarter project. Um, and I'm now freelancing for... Mr. Mason here. A um, number of campaigns I've written on. Oh. Sorry. Um, probably, well, I'm in the middle of writing the third one now on my own. Um, and I've probably run about the same number, maybe slightly more. I usually tend to run campaigns when I'm playtesting my own stuff. Okay, thanks. Matt. Hello, is there, can you all hear me with that? You've got to speak into it. Yeah, right, there we go. I can hear vaguely a feedback. Um, yep, um, I'm Matt Sanderson. I'm a freelancer for various uh, Cthulhu lines and a couple, couple of the uh, role-playing games as well. Uh, but predominantly those that feature the machinations of the great old ones. So I've worked for Call of Cthulhu, Trail of Cthulhu, and World War Cthulhu, Cold War, and Darkest Hour. Um, I've helped with Paul, um, Paul and Scott writing one campaign, uh, that's out, The Two-Headed Serpent. Uh, we're working on another one, and I've got one more on the horizon after that, just to be a glutton for punishment. Yeah. Uh, yes, hi, I'm Scott Dorwood. Uh, I'm the former line editor for World War Cthulhu. I do a lot of freelancing work for Chaosium and, and other companies. Uh, I have worked on, oh gosh, I think about four or five campaigns. I don't know, they all blur into one. Um, and yes, run a fair few over the years. Thanks very much. Okay, so this is about Call of Cthulhu campaigns. Um, I did tweet, if you want to hear some news, come to this panel. Oh, yeah. So shall we get the news bit out of the way first, yeah? Then we can get on with the rest of it, yeah? But I'll tell the news and you will leave it. <laughs> 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 
So the news is, the news is campaign related. Okay. So one of the um, best known campaigns for Call of Cthulhu is no surprise is Masks of Nalathotep. Yeah. Who's played it? Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, so um, the perennial question I get is when are you redoing Masks of Nalathotep? So the answer is, we've already done it. <laughs> so um, we actually have, uh, myself, um, working with Paul, Lynn and Scott, um, have actually just spent uh, eight to nine months completely revising that campaign. And that is now done in terms of the, the textual work. Uh, and now that's going to go into production with uh, new full-colour art, handouts and whatnot. Um, so that is the kind of big news uh, campaign related that uh, will be, uh, so, so in terms of a print edition, we'll be looking that uh, hopefully as soon as possible early in um, 2018 with hopefully the PDF version released before the end of this year. Um, little things I can tell you. We obviously we can answer a few questions at the end if you do want to know any more. Uh, but um, it will include uh, a new chapter, which will be a prologue chapter um, set in Peru, uh, where you first get to meet and become a good friend of Jackson Elias. <laughs> uh, and um, well, but, we hope he'll be. Well, we hope so. You may you may you may end up shooting him when you meet him. It's going to go downhill from there. But. Um, uh, but, uh, yes, yeah, so we're, we're all very excited about that. We put a lot of work into that. And um, Larry Dittilio, the original author, is uh, very supportive of it. In fact, has been reading it. And has just uh, before I actually came out here, uh, he emailed me to say, uh, I'm working on the new forward for you. And uh, it's great. And he, he's head over heels at RIB, getting it out again, and uh, is um, very supportive. So... Uh, and on the art side, some of you will be interested in, uh, we're working with both the French guys and the Spanish guys, as well as some of our own um, art talent to uh, realise some of the stuff. And Paul has just added a really important note that I completely forgot. One of the important things uh, with masks is it's always been considered a very pulpy campaign. So um, it kind of makes the assumption that we would do it for Pulp Cthulhu. Um, but I think it, it's bigger than that. So what we've done is we've written it for both Pulp and Standard Call of Cthulhu in the same book. So throughout, throughout the book, it's written for Standard Call of Cthulhu, but throughout, uh, there are boxer sides to just adjust it for Pulp where, where it's appropriate. Um, so you can just run the thing however way you want to run it, which is what I think it should be. So, uh, yeah, there you go. That's the news bit. That good news? Something you want to hear? Cool, thank you. Okay, so on with the panel. We'll, we'll have a bit of time for questions at the end as well. Um, so um, I asked everyone to sort of give me an idea of how many you've written and run. Oh, one question I did want to get straight to start with with you guys is, we can do this panel in one or two ways or a bit of both. We can talk about writing campaigns and we can talk about running campaigns and we could do a bit of both. Is there a preference... Do you, let's just do a quick hand thing. Do you want us to more, emphasize more about writing campaigns? Put your hand up. Do you want us to emphasize running campaigns? Do you want us to do a bit of both? 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Bear with us. We'll do, we'll do what we can. Okay. Bit of both. Bit of both. Okay. So, um, Scott, um, could you, do you want to elaborate on what you consider to be one of your favorite campaigns in terms of having either run it or you were a player in it or even you just, you just read it and you're looking forward to running it one day yeah. and, why, and why that might be? Okay. Um, the, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be awkward and I'll choose a campaign that's not actually out yet. Um, so, w w was it this year or last year? It was last year, it wasn't was it? It was last year now. Yeah. Um, Mike ran a playtest of a new Gaslight campaign that Chaosium's putting out called The Curse of Seven. Um, and I, to be honest, the, the Gaslight setting has never been my favourite out of the, the Call of Cthulhu ones, out of the three main settings. It's always been the one that I think, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd like to play that sometime, but it's not been top of my list. Um, and I was converted by this campaign. It was... Um, yeah, it, it was creepy in all the right ways. It was imaginative. It really sort of played with the ideas of the mythos. It wasn't just the sort of checklist of monsters that I was worried it might be. It, it had really sort of unusual themes running through it um, and played a lot with with the setting in a way that, again, I hadn't necessarily anticipated. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing that one in print. And your uh, character was completely stark-raving bonkers by the end of it Oh, well. yes, yes, yes. That yeah, was... I think that was, it got to a point where whenever you were tip, being tipped over the edge, you were... Um, ripping your shirt off, cutting Sigils, diagrams yeah. and, and, and icons into your flesh and, and shouting gibberish and spontaneously casting spells. Pretty much, Something yes. Like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, I, I think it also didn't help that somehow the dice had conspired to give my character a 1d6 damage bonus uh, and not very much sanity. So I ended up being much more of a danger to the other investigators than anything else they encountered. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yes, he was. <laughs> Thanks, okay. Scott. Um, Matt, what about you? Right. Uh, I've played plenty of campaigns, but I've only run one, and that was our play test of the Two-Headed Serpent, although I am ge um, gearing up for a local group to run Beyond the Mountains of Madness, which uh, myself, Paul, and Scott played in several years ago. Took a very long time to get through that. <laughs> well, I do, I do think there was a running theme, though, that your uh, method of um, investi uh, percussive investigation <laughs> was uh, hit every NPC and information will fall out of them works pr uh, pretty well in any campaign, to be honest. Um, the thing that uh, puts Beyond the Mountains of Madness at the top of the list for me is that there's a theme in other campaigns that I've played, such as Masks, um, just make, ha having uh, watched the Day of the Beast performance last night, uh, a few, others that, uh, a few others that spring to mind, Realm of Shadows, uh, Walker in the Waste. The very defined chapters that take place in different locations, so you can very much feel this is the end of one chapter and here's the start of another one. Whereas Beyond the Mountains of Madness felt very much one long story, that there wasn't, you couldn't really see the joins um, between different chapters. It just felt seamlessly all the way through, which to me is, um, it just felt all the more epic because of that, because it was such a long story. And also the fact that it hinged directly on one of Lovecraft's stories that had that hook dangling in front of the reader saying, the Starkweather Moor expedition, we've got to stop it! Yeah, having met Starkweather, you want to stop it from the start. Um, but yeah, even, even with saying that, it does have a couple, a couple of... I don't want to say flaws, but it does have a couple of things that I think um, could do with a little bit of tweaking. Too much pemmican. Far too much pemmican. <laughs> 
But other than that, that is the one, that's the one that stands at the top of the list for me, and it's one I'm very much looking forward to running now, even if it is a bit daunting when you sat, look, sit looking at a telephone, si a telephone directory-sized book going, oh boy. <laughs> Does, do you like the accounting in it as well? Well, that, that's just my day job. That's what I mean. That's right. You, you, did, you mentioned pemmican. I would go accounting would be my problem with that. But <laughs> that's what I'll, I'll just start writing a credit analysis report. I'll start saying, oh, your current ratio is pretty good for here. You've got good cash flow. Yeah, it's, all, it's all good. Those harmonicas won't count themselves. Well, that's true enough. <laughs> got to keep an eye on them. You don't want them going missing. Right, Lynn, how about you? Right. Um... The sad thing is, I didn't get to play any of the sort of the classic ones because I, when I started role playing at university, we had uh, pretty much everybody in the group was a GM. So although I did play some Call of Cthulhu at university, and it was the second role playing game I ever played, the, the keeper never did any of the big campaigns. So I'm I'm a complete big campaign virgin as far as like horror on the Orient Express masks and things are concerned. So I'm going to have to be terribly non English and self promoting. <laughs> and go for, for Shadows of Atlantis um, because I had a great deal of fun researching that and writing it and the playtest group that I had at our friendly local gaming store, Travelling Man, were amazing um, and it just started out as me testing it with a series of people who just, whoever turned up really and it ended up with a core group of players who took the pregens that I'd created and really breathed life into them and that was a lovely thing for me to see as the writer and keeper, how they used them and exploited them and how their stories developed. Um, and the other great thing as well being that, yeah, it, it showed it mostly worked, which is always a comforting thing to know when you're writing something that size and putting it out for other people to use. But I would also have to say Curse of Seven was a huge amount of fun. Cool. Paul? So I would pick uh, Realm of Shadows from Pagan Publishing. I, I've played it and I've run it. Uh, when I first played it, the keeper ran it for just two players, myself and another player. And the introduction, the, the start of the campaign is very mundane. It's just an investigation about a missing woman and her child. And there are very, very slight hints of something mythosy, but it's really on the back burner. And I remember waking up that night, like dreaming about it and just trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. Because we got a load of handouts and a lot of information, but it was just so, it just felt so real and we were so involved in it. I think maybe because we were just two investigators and we were like private eyes, it, you know, it really worked. And that campaign just slowly ramps up, but it's not world spanning. It starts off in a small town and then there's another investigation in the small town and then it, it slowly scales up and you ride along with it and you do go down to South America uh, into the jungles and it's set a little later as well so it's set at the start of the Second World War and so it's a slightly different setting and you know just a lot of fun and really engaging um, yeah I think that's that's what I would say about that one. So that that was uh, that was the one I've enjoyed most. And running it equally, yeah, I've had a you know great time running that. I think just to sort of throw by to Penny Thin, um, I think um, I really the early the first campaign I ever played in was Masks, and it it kind of blew me away because I mean I just didn't know what was going on, and the thing in the fog just gobbled me up, and then. And then I created a new character, and then that got, um, I don't know, how do I describe it politely? Um, 
uh, he ended at a, at a right on um, Mizir Island at uh, Edward Gavigan's house when he summoned something to interact with me in an interesting way. Um, uh, but I also, uh, so I, you know, that's always got a patch in my heart. And um, Horror Orient Express, I've run about four times now. So I kind of, as well as having worked on it, I kind of know it inside out. And um, so that's kind of, I've always enjoyed running, you know, running that. And uh, in terms of uh, a non-cosian one, um, Walking the Wastes, I think the the first, I don't know, the first third of the book, when you're out in the, you know, Arctic. you're out in the Arctic, and um, I really like that. I think that works really well. I think it has a few problems thereafter, um, but um, but that that initial kind of setup of the premise and um, trying to, you know, you're discovering um, bits about the. Um, the expedition. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Frank, it's not Franklin. Franklin. All oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're discovering bits about the Franklin expedition. All wonderful stuff. Really, really hooked me. Um, but anyway, that's that's you know that's my uh, I think they're my faves. Apart, you know, but I'm, I'm I'm consciously avoiding anything I've actually really done myself or um, working on it currently. But um, which I you know also like too, funnily enough. But um, um, but what. <sighs> Why bother with campaigns? Why you, you know, Call of Cthulhu at, is, at its purest is really good at a one shot. You can play a horror, you can play a horror novel, you can play a horror film in a one shot. You can get to a climax. You can get the characters' art done in that kind of really pure, um, pure sense in a one shot. Why do you need a campaign? What, what what's different? What do you get? What more do you get from a campaign? For me. The most interesting part of a campaign is the longer-term character development. I mean, you, you touched upon what happened to my character in The Curse of Seven, and that wouldn't have been anywhere near as interesting in a one-shot. I mean, sure, you can have characters go spectacularly mad in one-shots and, and, and do bizarre things, but you don't have that degree of emotional development with them, you know, that, that, that connection to them. And to sort of experience that, that so slow decline and trust transformation uh, and them developing all these kind of quirks and tics and obsessions um, yeah that that's that's really quite an intense experience um, and yeah yeah I, I think only campaigns can give that to you Lynn what about you yeah I'd have to agree with Scott you do get that emotional development you see the characters build develop change go crazy crazy um but you also get to tell more involved more detailed stories as well you can explore the world to a greater degree and exploring the world finding the weird stuff that's one of the things i really enjoy about the, the campaigns matt mentioned um something interesting when he was talking about uh, beyond the mountains of madness um was unlike uh, many of the kind of former kind of campaigns that which were very more episodic and chapter based, which mainly comes from them being set in um, you know multi multi locational kind of situation. So each location is is inherently its own scenario. So it's easier to sort of divide that by a chapter. Like you know, masks is a classic. You know, London, Cairo, etc. Each their own scenarios um, that may that interlink heavily, but you know they exist in their own right. Whereas um, uh, Beyond the Mountains of Madness is, you know, there's 
well, okay, there are multi-locations, but they kind of bleed more easily into, you know, into one. Uh, and certainly the largest of them, Antarctica, is where the majority of the actual uh, events take place. So um, in terms of that, in terms of, you know, writing uh, and uh, and even running in terms of ease of running what do you think about that in terms of um when approaching a campaign is that something does that figure in your thoughts do you think you know maybe if it's all divided into chapters it's going to make it a bit easier to run or, or plan out if you're writing it what what do you think paul yeah I th traditionally it's often been the case that one author does one chapter and like you get from A to B and then the next author picks up another chapter and they, you know, they're told at the start of that chapter the characters are going to be here and then you're going to pick them up here, you're going to take them through this country and you've got to get them to that point. When you're running the game, sometimes for me that feels a bit like, well, what if they don't go there? What if they do something different? I want the freedom to kind of improvise with this and maybe they're not going to do chapter one, two, three, four, five. Maybe they're going to go chapter one and then they're going to find something and go off to chapter four. So I like games that will allow that flexibility. And when we worked on Two-Headed Serpent, particularly with the, the pulp campaign, we really kind of bore that in mind. So it starts off in Bolivia and... You know, the, the opening chapter of a campaign, like you talked about Walker and the Waste, Mike, I think the opening chapter is a bit like a one-shot. It's, you know, you are there, you're, that's where you begin, and you play it out, and then you kind of pick it up with the next chapter. But what that next chapter might be kind of depends on the experience they have in that first chapter. So with Two-Headed Serpent, we play-tested the chapters in a certain order, but then we were like, well, maybe actually we should put that chapter there and you know, give advice to the keeper on how to handle you know, in different orders depending on what the players do and what gets revealed because that allows the players more agency and more engagement with the campaign. Then they actually don't feel like, oh, okay, it's pretty obvious you know, the keeper wants us to go to I don't know, France next. Um, I guess we better go there don't know what else to do but if they've got a choice then I think it's you know it grabs you more and what you were saying about playing campaigns to me I think is about immersion in in the in the world immersion in the character and that stays with you if you're playing like a weekly game that kind of stays rolling around in the back of my head when I'm kind of just sat daydreaming which is you know 95% of my time I'm um, you know that that's what I'm sort of thinking about and I like that what's your take on that Matt it's it's definitely easier from a writing uh, writing standpoint to say that you're writing the chapter set uh, using the two-headed serpent example. You're, you're the one writing the one set in Bolivia. You're the one doing North Borneo. You're the one doing Iceland and so forth. Um, it means that you can keep the uh, the writing self um, self contained. You don't have to worry about uh, at least at the beginning anyway. Thinking where's the links going to be to other chapters? At least it gives you that kind of defined canvas that um, at least I find definitely helps get the creative juices flowing, thinking where where I can bounce off dif uh, different angles. But yeah, it, it helps also in terms of uh, running and prepping a game, I find, especially when I've been doing um, some of my prep for Beyond the Mounts of Madness, I can read a couple of chapters at a time. 
and then think, well, I know they're not going to go from one and suddenly in a single session zoom all the way through to chapter five. They're probably only going to go uh, do the first chapter, maybe a little bit of the second, and so and so forth. So it definitely helps with the prep that you don't have to worry about reading the whole thing all in one go. I mean, it's recommended so you get the overall arc, but I've got some of that having played the campaign before anyway. It's also bringing back a lot of memories of some of the crazy stuff we ended up doing when we played it. But yeah, it, it certainly helps with, say, writing and prep, I think. That's the, that's the main advantage of a, a chapter structure like that. We've got an interesting dynamic on the panel because um, amongst us, we've got, um, we've got a campaign that was solely written by one person, Lynn, and we've got a campaign that was written by three people, two at a time, the three guys. Um, so, which is obviously you know, two very different ways of producing the same end product. So, Lynn, do you want to talk about how you approach writing a whole campaign because I mean often I you know over the years um, I have been approached by you know young very eager writers who have never published anything and, and the first thing they want to write is a, a full-on big campaign um, which sort of sends shivers down my spine because if there's one thing that will make you never want to write again is to <laughs> the first thing you write is a major campaign um, so I, you know I try and um, gently gear them towards something a little bit more, you know, bite-sized. But um, Lynn, you know, talk about, talk about how you, how do you approach doing that, you know, doing the entire thing on your own? <clears throat> well, I think it helps to have a certain degree of glutton for punishment thing going on there. Um, the way I tend to do it is I may have an inkling of an idea, something I'd like to explore. Maybe there's one of the um, elder gods that I don't think has been particularly well represented or, or not shown up an awful lot. So one of the more unusual creatures that I'd like to base something around. But I tend to start uh, a lot of the time by looking at what areas of the world interest me. Where would it be fun to go and run around and go crazy? And then I'll start doing the research. And I know Paul doesn't, we, we do the exact opposite because we've, talk, we've talked about this before. Um, so I like to do the research because quite often I find amazing weird stuff that you only have to tweak a tiny amount to make it mythos appropriate. So it makes my life easier, um, particularly if you are trying to do like a big long campaign. Um, you know, the, the more you let real history help you out there, the, the easier it becomes. So you tend to find interesting things emerging, interesting other things that you can build in that are quite often better than the ideas you had. And you have to be prepared to accept that. Kill your darlings. You know, you've, you've got to, to take that on board. Um, and actually doing the research for Children of Fear, um, that completely changed where it ended up going. Because I thought it was going in one direction based on a lot of the India research I'd done for Shadows of Atlantis that never got used. But it became clear when I was researching the areas that there was this underlying theme that kept coming through the historical research. And it was like, no, it's trying to tell me something here. This is what it's actually going to be. So it got reworked to take that into account. I can't tell you what it is, because obviously that would give the complete game away. But yeah, I use the research a lot to help inspire me, help pick out the areas of interest, tweak the plot, uh, and just really try and help the the, the players go to interesting places and see interesting things that might be a little bit different. Bit of a glutton for punishment because you're doing that again for Children of Fear, aren't you? I am, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the, that'll be the third one now I've written completely on my own, which was why it was really nice to get to work on masks. I know that was a revision, but actually getting to work with other people and not sitting alone in my little hovel 
not talking to anybody <laughs> about what I'm doing. It was a lovely change, actually. <laughs> so in terms of writing the campaign yeah, the other way, um, three of you guys, um, you know, I said, could you write me a pork campaign? Uh, I'd like, could, you know, tell, tell me what you think you want to do and then we'll talk about it. How, how did you go about it? Well, you know, once you got off the phone from me, what, what happened? Yeah, I mean, we've done, oh gosh, we've done, what, at least five books between us now. Um, and, I mean, we, we've developed, you know, certain particular ways of working. Um, mostly, in the early stages, it involves sitting around in coffee shops, just bouncing ideas off each other and making lots of notes and, um, and just generally getting the shape of things. Then we start divvying up the work between us. And for campaigns, you know, as we've touched upon, the, the, the easiest thing to do by far is just break it down chapter by chapter. But because, you know, we, we all live fairly close to each other, we all see each other regularly, we talk uh, regularly, it makes it perhaps a slightly more collaborative process than other campaigns I've worked on in that respect, in that um, you know, we will get to sit down and, and you know, revise each other's bits, talk through things that aren't quite working, because we playtest each other's work. and we uh, Playtesting is a huge part of how we develop. I mean, we tend to start off with rough ideas, bullet points, notes, uh, stuff like that, playtest from those, and then write it up afterwards, depending on what works. Um, and because we're playtesting each other's chapters and each other's bits as we go along, then we feed our own ideas. In. And quite often we'll have these debrief sessions afterwards where it's sort of, oh, yeah, I mean, you wrote this, but I ended up sort of improvising this whole riff here. And, you know, they, they went off and did this. And, you know, we didn't expect this to happen, but this was really fun. And a lot of that will actually find its way back into the book. Um, so the end result tends to be, you know, quite different than what we, we set out doing. And, um, you know, again, that, that sort of collaborative part comes back into the, the polishing and ed editing process at the end. And that, well, you know, once each one of us sort of takes the role as being lead writer on a chapter and we're ultimately responsible for the content there. But the others will, you know, we, we use Google Docs. Uh, we share the documents between us so we can see what each other is doing. And um, we will go through each other's documents, comment, uh, annotate bits. And, you know, so as a result, the, you know, what, what comes out at the end is far more collaborative than each of us just writing a chapter. Yeah, I think... <sighs> Historically, in, in terms of the way campaigns have been written, I think it's been touched on, is that, you know, historically it was either one person did it all, like Larry Dottilio sat down, wrote masks, and then it was then, you know, obviously tinkered and revised uh, with, with Lynn Willis, etc. going forwards. But it was very much, a you know, a, a, you know one person and then a, a second person coming in, working together to develop that vision for that. Um, but... In the main, it has tended to be, here's a group of writers, each of them are writing their own separate chapter, and then somebody kind of connects them together at the end. Yeah. Um, and uh, oftentimes, um, the kind of critical response to those has been generally, you know, generally positive, but where you can see the joins, they they tend to be, you know, more, they, it, it does tend to be more obvious, and, and the campaigns do tend to be... Um, less you know less you know knitted together in that way the less less organic um and uh where where it has been much more collaborative effort throughout the entirety of the campaign that 
they, the cohesion is much stronger, much more apparent. And that plays also to that kind of player agency that, that they seem to be much more adaptable to, for players going in different directions at different times. Whereas, um, scenarios that are written, uh, you know, it, it remotely tend to require you need to be at point A at this time. Uh, for it to really move on, um, and that's something I become aware of more and more as, as you know, kind of uh, looking at older campaigns and revising them, in updating them, as well as developing and writing new campaigns. And um, in terms of um, developing campaigns going forward, I strongly recommend, unless it's some, unless it's you know an individual, I strongly recommend that. Um, if it's a team of writers that they they work they work much more closely, even if they're not you know they're they're all remote to one another, but their communication is is much more regular and stronger than than maybe would have been traditionally available, um, you know, uh, back in the uh, the eighties and nineties perhaps, because um, I think that really shows in the end product. Um, but in terms of um, in terms of running campaigns, what 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 tips have we got for for people out there in terms of you know when you're approaching a campaign, uh, Matt Matt very good tip about you know think just ahead of you know where the players are going to get to in this session in this session because that's all you really need to gen up on. That's all you really need to prep. You don't need to over prep. Just focus on what's coming up and then worry about the next session next week. Um, that's always a really good tip I find. Um, what what are the tips have we got for people, Paul? What, what's your recommendations? I think, uh, <clears throat> oh, excuse me. I think as with running a one shot, uh, as we put in the, the core book, I would, I remember when, I, well, well, I remember when I ran Walker in the Waste the first time a long time ago, I made copious notes. Uh, I've, got, I've still got them there, pages and pages and pages of handwritten notes. And really, when I was running it, there was, I, I just can't take in that much information to, to you know, to, so quickly. So really now what I do is I just strip it all down to the bare essentials. So I read it and I get what the author is saying about the chapter in the campaign, but I don't necessarily retain all the details, but I, you know, I note down like the key facts. And because I've read that chapter, I've got an impression of it in my mind. So the things I describe, they may not be exactly the things that are described in the chapter, but I've got the right flavor. And that allows me to be a bit more spontaneous as the keeper when it comes to running it. I'm not having to sort of look at my notes and go, oh, yeah, this guy's got, you know, he's dressed like this and his hair's that color. Because that doesn't really matter. You know, if it's a businessman, I describe him, you know, in my head what a businessman looks like. Um, so I think that's important. Strip it back so it makes it easy for you as the keeper. And then you can relax and improvise a bit. I think. If you're having to really work hard to flag things up to the players, that feels like a bit of a drag. So make sure that the, you know, the key points are in there, the, the, the clues, maybe they miss some clues, but now we've got the, you know, we've got the idea role. So if they do go off track, you can kind of fall back on that. Um, yeah, I think just try and make it your own really. And if they do go off on a tangent, don't try and pull them back too hard. You know, just they, they shouldn't really be aware that they're going off on a tangent, that they've gone off the page. And when they sort of say, oh, you know, what we did there, I guess that really kind of broke the scenario. That must have been a problem. Well, it's like, no, that was great. That was like the best bit. Often the best bits aren't the bits that were in the scenario on the page. They're the bits that you spontaneously create on the moment. You know, oh, that was great. You know, I remember when we were playing um, 
horror, horror on the Orient Express map. Mm -hmm. And our keeper decided we could go off to that island in Italy. Well, that wasn't in the book. <laughs> and there's a bunch of ghouls and everything. That was, and, and, and as we were playing, actually, I was thinking, this is another Matt that was running the game for us. I was thinking, you know, I think he's making this stuff up. <laughs> he's having a good, I can see he's having a really good time running this. And I know that this other Matt really likes ghoul scenarios. So it's like, yeah, I just wish I hadn't tried to lift that. It's like, you can lift the coffin down off that shelf. Like, well, as long as you don't fumble the roll. <laughs> you can fill in the rest. <laughs> yeah, that throwaway side scene ended up killing Paul's character in quite spectacular fashion. Yeah. Much, much to the amusement well, was, of everyone else at the table. That was fun, right? Oh, hell yeah. I think there's a lot of concern about killing off characters in campaigns and how that might kind of, you know, wreck the whole thing. Um, and we don't want like everyone to be like a TPK. But I think often the most memorable things in campaigns are like, you know, oh, you, you, know you went crazy, you got this, this blue knife and you ran off into the woods and that was the last we saw of him. Um, yeah, another one that there was, some, somehow happened. In the uh, first it time... It was my I, knife. First time I played Masks and Avatar, I was a player. And my, my best mate, he decided to play this, um, this Chinese um, scholar who was, you know, book obsessed, obviously. Um, so every every book we found, he took ownership of. And at one point in the campaign, not for any plot reason, just because he thought it was a really good thing to do, he just disappeared with all the books in the middle of the scenario. <laughs> we had no idea what was going on. And he just left it. No, he's gone. I've got a new character now. <laughs> Completely screwed us. Oh, well. But anyway, uh, Lynn, what's your, what's your top tip? Backing up what Paul said, be prepared to roll with it. Because you know what players are like. They'll quite often come up with really great ideas that will add their own spin on it, take it in their own direction. Because as we spoke about yesterday, if you were at the panel yesterday, obviously when someone's writing a campaign, they're writing for a generic group of faceless players. We don't know what your players like. We don't know uh, what, you know, gets them all excited. Uh, and... There's something we used to do in live role-playing, which was called the woodlouse test. Um, you take your plot, you explain it to three woodlice, only one of which has to actually be alive, and if they understand it, there's a chance the players might get through it without getting too confused. And the idea is that you, you know, keep things simple as well. You know, as, as Paul was saying, keep the notes simple, try and find the, the nice flow through the simplest path, but be prepared for your place to really complicate lives, their, their own lives, because they will, and they're very good at that, and just roll with it. Keep it interesting and entertaining for them without making it hard work for you, because you're both supposed to be having fun, otherwise why are you doing it? Fair enough. What about, okay, that we, I'm counting that you're, you've already had a top tip, Matt, <laughs> so I'm going to ask you something else. Um, so... What about problems? How do you deal with them? What was, have you encountered a problem or is there a common, common problem within campaign play that you, you know, have an answer for? Yeah, there is one thing that's always at the back of my mind, especially when we play longer games, which, again, to keep the flow of the story going, when a character dies, it's going to happen. When the character wants to bring in a new, um, a new investigator what kind of logical explanation have they got to turn up? How are they going to feed into the, uh, all the other characters there and join, kind of hitting the ground running? Because the last thing you want to do is uh, suddenly stop every few sessions and then, 
right? We'll get the pre-prepared brief out. You are here to do this, 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 this. And then give them all that backstory that they're obviously in character, their character wouldn't necessarily have got. So having that kind of connective um, tissue, as it were, for, uh, for all the characters, thinking of a framework for them, which is why I think investigator organisations and groups work really, really well. Um, everything from Delta Green to the organisations presented in the, um, the investigator's companion. Um, and largely, it does help a lot. Um, one I don't always like to throw out there is from a long time ago that Paul might remember from when we were playing Mask of Neathletep. Um, we had one character that had been with us for a long way through the scenario and got killed off in the, um, in the last chapter in, in Shanghai. Um, he spent about half an hour at the table rolling up a new character, um, thought, oh, I can use this hook from someone else, I can use this hook from someone else, came up with a nice little backstory, got one roll, um, he passed a listen roll to say, what's that dripping sound over there? Oh, I'll go and start mopping that up, get the Shoggoth envelops him, that was one roll, dead. Next character. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I did that as well. <laughs> Except it was, on a, it was on a train called the Orient Express, but yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. Stay but, away yeah. from the black ooze. <laughs> But yeah, have, having something to help support your um, players and get over that kind of problem of, well, how am I going to sort of squeeze in another investigator and come up with, um, with even less outlandish reasons why they should just suddenly join the group halfway through a campaign is definitely something to, to have, bear in mind because that can be a problem. Especially with Beyond the Mountains of Madness. It's like, oh, I just happened to be walking past in Antarctica and I saw your expedition. I, hey, do you want to join? I think I think that's you know it's, it's a really good point, Matt. Obviously, you know, masks is the prime example again of the you know the kind of you know with the uh, oh the, the the bloke who sells papers on the street corners just joined the party. Is is the nearest guy we can find? Um, uh, and I think that kind of sense of an ensemble cast is something that's not always really. Um, Really taken on board, uh, and that you can actually have multiple characters, but they don't actually be have to be ha act, actually have to be active at the same time. You can treat them like a, you know, like a, you know, uh, as an illustrative purpose. It could be like an army unit. You're not all playing the entirety of the army unit this second. You're playing, you know, the f four guys, you know, currently, you know, at the front driving the truck. I don't know, uh, but at any one point, you can sort of be playing somebody in the back and and. You know, it, it's a different style of play, but you can you can do that quite successfully. And you could, you know, you maybe have two or three, you know, personal characters within this kind of ensemble cast, really, um, that you could um, call upon. And they could all be members of the same organisation or, or affiliated in some way. Um, but equally, you know, it's to you know to draw upon the resources that you have, and and um, you know you make make good use of those NPCs that you develop relationships with that, that can be drawn in in a um, an organic and semi-realistic fashion, I guess. But uh, yeah, Scott, have you got to address a, a, an issue you might get with campaigns? Yeah, sure. Um, well, <laughs> I, a lot of the people I play with are about my age, and so as a result, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have as much free time as they, they did when they were younger. They've got other commitments, can't meet as frequently, certainly not for as long sessions. Um, and also, yeah, when you get to around my age, your memory isn't what it used to be. Um, so uh, ensuring continuity and making sure that people actually keep um, you know, track of what's going on 
is, is pretty essential. I mean, you know, part of that is, you know, down to you as a keeper just keeping good notes and, and you know, making sure that you remember what happened. Um, but also, you know, you want to try to foster as much of that in the players as possible. And so, I you know, obviously things like handouts help. Um, but, the, I mean, the one thing that I do at the start of every session is that instead of me giving a recap to the players, I ask the players to give a recap to me. Um, because... That, you know, I mean, for a start, it gets their brain working. It gets them, you know, thinking about what happened. And perhaps, you know, it's interesting. At that stage, they'll sometimes start making connections that they hadn't made during the game. Um, but also, the, the other nice thing about doing that, I find, is particularly for playtesting or games that I'm largely improvising rather than uh, running from written material, is that it will give me some indication of what the players are finding important. You know, there's this whole plot thread that I put in that I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, this is obviously where it's going. And no one mentions it during the recap. Then that goes out the window. Um, and, yeah, we just focus on, on what they, they really care about. Thanks, Scott. I was just trying to... I was doing a quick add-up of what campaigns we've got coming out over the next, you know, <laughs> period of time. Um, um, I mean, um, we've got, there's another pulp campaign that's fully written, because I can see the author in the, uh, in the audience, uh, called The Cold Fire Within, um, which um, Mr. Christopher Smith Adair has uh, written, which is a tremendous uh, thing that will be hopefully coming out next year. Uh, Curse of Seven, which has been mentioned, which is a gaslight campaign. Uh, Children of Fear, which is a, a 20s uh, campaign written by Lynn. Uh, we have a, um, a pulp Another pulp campaign that's in writing at the moment is not finished, um, which is um, I don't know, I dread, dread to say it out loud. It's 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 um, it's an unusual one. It, it's 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 called Lost Legends, and uh, it's going to be a really um, exciting and unusual kind of thing. I'd probably best leave it at that for the moment. Um, there's uh, Down Darker Trails, obviously just come out in PDF, and we have a one of the books, which is um, Shadows Over Stillwater, includes a kind of mini campaign in there as well. Um, and they're all, just check myself, yeah, they're all brand new. They're all unpublished, as it were, new works. Um, but we obviously also have now have Mass coming out. Um, we've redone Orient Express. Um, and um, we've got Two Headed Serpent, which has obviously, you know, only recently come out as well. Um, so I think, you know, Campaigns are kicking in alive in Call of Cthulhu to some degree. Um, you know, the evidence seems to be there. And that's not even counting getting around to revising H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham, Dunwich, Innsmouth, um, and, and Lovecraft County, which in, in and of themselves, whilst they feature kind of standalone scenarios, are effectively campaigns because they are setting campaigns that you can, you know, develop a whole series of play around. Um, so there's a lot. There's a lot out there. <laughs> there's a lot out there already, and there's a lot coming. Um, so I think campaigns are, as I say, you know, truly kicking in alive. Um, but um, I hope that brief kind of little bit of insight into hopefully running and writing has been of interest. But we have a little bit of time uh, remaining for a few questions. If there's anything particularly you wanted to direct to, to the panel, any any particular questions you have? Yes. Um, how useful it would be this afternoon to follow it? 
10-page outline, 40-page treatment, 100-plus page campaign. Is that kind of an approach, building a campaign, to your minds, a useful way to go? I, yeah, using a kind of a, a screenwriting approach is the question. Use um, writing, you know, a, a short um, synopsis and then building up from there effectively. Um, yeah, I think that's a I think it's a very valid way of doing it because um, it allows you to, you know, look at what effectively are the the key um, themes uh, and concepts within the uh, within the campaign how they may fit and construct together and obviously build a narrative arc from you know, beginning, middle and end. And I think that's, a, that's, that's quite a, you know, an interesting way of doing it because you can, if you can do it in short synopsis form, you know, this, this, this scenario or this chapter will be about this beat and this one will be about this beat and you can just literally put them there and mix them up and add, add new ones in without doing a, a lot of work. It's all, you know, mind work with a, a few lines of, uh, you know, bullet synopses. Um, I think that's a really interesting way of going about it because that will really help you to kind of get a plan and a sketch of the concept and the narrative um, down. What's useful yeah. about that is that level of outline, perhaps treatment, you have to find plot holes and problems before you actually commit to what you're talking about, right? Yes. So this is I mean that particularly true if you, you know if you're working on your own uh, I think a lot of that can't that comes out in conversation. I think that's the kind of conversation yeah. you guys were having in coffee shops was exactly that approach, I, I, I can, verbally, I can, effectively. I can elaborate on that a bit yeah. more if you yeah. want. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that is very much the way that, that we develop stuff. So we will start out from that, you know, very you know, simple pitch to begin with. Uh, so, you know, with the Two-Headed Serpent, it was just sort of, we wanted to do a pop campaign and we wanted to involve this particular mythos beastie. And that was where we started from. And then, yeah, it was for a start, I mean, sort of fleshing that out into, you know, a much larger, not even synopsis, but concept at that stage and, you know, putting in some of the complications and factions. And then, you know, it, it was sort of breaking it out layer by layer like that. So, um, you know, because the development process did involve, you know, doing, you know, bullet points and then writing full chapters. And because in some cases those were broken down scene by scene, yeah, it was that iterative expanding process. And yeah, I mean, you're right. I, that, the good thing about doing that, I mean, is, is that, yeah, it allows you to catch those problems before you've committed too much time. I mean, the last thing you want is to write 70,000, 100,000 words of a campaign, get to the end of it and think, oh, well, that didn't bloody work. <laughs> and also, one of the other things is that a lot of companies will want you to pitch your games to them that way. If you're planning on writing it up professionally and trying to get it published... Um, certainly Pelgrane do, they have like a multi-step submission process, so you'll give them your first idea, which might just be a couple of paragraphs, then they'll want a slightly more detailed version, breaking that down, and if they like that, then they'll work with you to develop it further. So it's a good practice to get into for a variety of reasons. And also, it's been really helpful because, you know, Mike made me go and do a lovely pitch for Children of Fear, and then, you know, dragging me off to go and work on masks, I've had a nine-month break, Having that synopsis there to remind me what it was I was doing at the time is really helpful now as I'm trying to get back up to speed 
to, to finish the game off. Brian. Yeah, um, uh, as we're talking about campaigns, um, I keep having an image of like the combat flowchart uh, from the rule book in my head. And I'm wondering, uh, I don't know, I haven't really taken a really in-depth look at, at some of the more recent campaigns like Two-Headed Serpent. I've purposefully not peaked in case I'm ever a player. Um, so this may already be in practice or, or maybe something you guys do before you put uh, the big campaigns out. But do you have sort of a, I was wondering if anybody on the panel or in the group maybe almost does like a visual flowchart like that, like that, like that combat page or uh, what's that? Kind of like a web thing or even like the old school detective movies where they'd have like a bulletin board and they'd have like all the strings going to all the different things. So if people go off the rails or people uh, go off in different directions, you can kind of say, well, these are all the connecting threads. How can I kind of work them to one of these bubbles? Sure. I mean, a very easy answer for Two-Headed Serpent is that there are relationship diagrams in terms of NPCs, but in terms of plot narrative, there isn't a diagram that because, because it's a pulp plot, it's fairly straightforward. It's not like masks, which is like multiple. Every every encounter is multiple connections. Whereas in in uh, in Tour de Serpent, because it's much more an action orientated pulp campaign, it's pretty clear the direction of travel. So as a keeper, it, it's it's a lot easier to navigate. I think I'm right in saying that. That's my impression. Um, so it's not. I don't. You find that you'd need that, but certainly in masks. Uh, what we what we've done is, I mean, we we were finding plot links that were in the original that even they had missed that you know that uh, that we were needing to re-elaborate upon, and um, and so you know we've been categorically key all the key scenes have been the task of mapping entry points into those scenes and mapping the exit points from those scenes, as well as mapping the NPC crossovers as well as the handout crossovers. At one point, I did have my computer screen covered in post-it notes. <laughs> it's like, so he goes to there, and they go to do that, and then that will do this. And it was just literally a screen of multicolored post-it notes with just scrawls all over, so I could make sure we'd actually covered everything and everything was connecting where it needed to be. So, so to answer your question in that, yes. So in, in that, for instance, there'll be the, there'll be the actual um, written text um, guidance navigation, uh, but there'll also be, um, you know, what, what we're just calling kind of clue trees. So each chapter will have a clue tree that would just be a more visual, the same information, but just in a visual, a different visual medium, basically. Just because, you know, some people find that easier to visualise, other people do it through the text or whatever. So, so whatever's easy, really. Um, but Mike, it, did we stick with know. the clue diagrams? We'd better have done, because yes. I did loads of them. I spent hours yes. in Word putting yeah. little arrows we, in them. We redid all yours, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I remember looking at them and going, I can't make head or tail of this. this is, I mean, sometimes, yeah, you want the information laid out clearly and concisely in a way that, that makes sense. Uh, but if it's, if it's really complex, sometimes having it in a flow chart is like, there's so many threads here that... It's like a big spider's and, that, and that's why I say it's awesome, be, yeah. of course, is because there's one point yeah. we have three different ways of doing it in each chapter. There was the there was the 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 kind of references at the start of each kind of key 
um, encounter or section of text or location. There was the um, clue table at the beginning of each chapter, which listed all the handouts and where they were going from and coming to and who was involved. And then there was the, you know, a, a, a little space saying, insert clue diagram here. And uh, it got to the point where we'd done all of this and that we we're going through, and I think I'd I think I called you two up and said, do we actually need these clue tables? Because I can't work out. Can you make sense of this? I can't make any sense of them. I'm thinking like, oh, Mike must understand this. uh, And I'm I'm scratching my head like, I don't understand how this works. And and, and, so we went, well, none of us can. Oh, can we just, we just deleted them. And then we just kept, kept, kept with the uh, actual diagram flow charts and then the uh, the actual links actually on in situ ones. Uh, But it is not an easy, because everyone's different, but yeah. Try, try to do the best to make it as easy as possible for the keeper where we can. But you know what's going to happen. We'll put it out there and some bright spark who's a genius at technology will just do something and they'll just like, oh, that's how we should have done it. Thanks. <laughs> and I think if there's a bit in there that as, as an individual you don't really understand and you're working on a campaign, don't assume that other people understand it because actually they may also be thinking, I'm sure somebody else understands this. And then eventually you sort of say, I don't really get that. Oh, actually, nor do I. Oh, okay, maybe we need to redo that bit. Absolutely, there was a, at the back, yeah? Just two quick questions. Uh, you mentioned the Lovecraft Country books. Is there a definite timeline for those? Oh, if only there was. There was, there was. There, there, I had a bit, one, once upon a time, about three years ago, I had this bit of paper with all these kind of major projects on and when I was going to do them and you know what I wanted to do first and my priorities. And then I just screwed that up in the, <laughs> on the window because that's not real life. But um, uh, yes, yeah, so I've been saying um, it will be, ne- be next year when I do that. I've been saying that for four years. And... Um, and I fully intend that next year, 2008, I will do my damnedest to get at least one. 2018. 2018, right. sorry. <laughs> uh, at least one of those books done. Uh, but my intention, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, um, <laughs> I'm trying to put myself in a position where I do them all at the same time, so that it gets them all done. But then, then the other ones related to the masks uh, update. Well, things like the companion and. The- new pops kickstarters that come out like with Delphus and all that still be relevant to the new campaign? Okay, well, the, the, um, I can't, well, I can, I can tell you about the companion in terms of relevance, but certainly in terms of Delphus, um, uh, props for the, yes, they will, because, um, because obviously she came to us after we'd kind of more or less completed it. And then I was able to kind of direct her kind of on the quiet to say, look, you know, the, his, Here's the, you know, the slight, you know, if we've changed the name of an NPC or even the, the gender or whatever it may be, then we're able to kind of, you know, let her know that. And, uh, uh, and if any props have slightly changed in terms of how they might look or whatever, then, then uh, we've been able to kind of, you know, feed that into her development process. So, uh, and to be honest, not a great deal has changed because they're, they're very iconic things that we didn't want to, you know, mess around too much with. But um, so, so her Kickstarter has certainly been informed by the, the new edition. Uh, obviously, the Masks Companions were in 10 years ago. Um, so, you know, that uh, hasn't really factored into the new edition. Obviously, what we were aware of that the, the Masks uh, Companion was written because there was a, that uh, was, you know, felt there was information missing from the, com- you know, the campaign. Um, so, you know, when we came to revise it, we tried to be, you know, as thorough as we could, ensuring that you didn't need a 700-page book to run the campaign anymore. So, obviously, there's a lot in that campaign, in the companion, that 
will still be useful because there's a lot of historical documentary research in there that you know if you want to add further depth to the setting then that campaign will the companion will you know have information that may be useful to you but it won't be essential for you to run the campaign uh, because um, you know we've written it that so you can run it from the book thank you um, I just had a brief question uh, for for me in my gaming I'm definitely the Lovecraft aficionado and fan. Um, and a lot of times you end up playing like D&D and stuff like that. Uh, and they're very sold on that idea. Um, and so I'm wondering, is there a way, because like you were talking about the black ooze, right? When you see black ooze, don't hear it. Like you see them going, oh, I've dealt with a black ooze before, whatever. And it's like, okay, you're not a barbarian. You are just a skinny human and he's going to eat you. Um, is there any way to marry like the two, or find a way, because I know some, like that might get very frustrating to someone that's like, well, I, don't, I can't fight anything. Maybe this is going to kill me in one hit. I, I think what you're, I think the answer to you is, is Pulp Cthulhu. Okay. I think the, the answer, just, you know, seriously, if, if you have a bunch of players that, that are very kind of coming from that kind of classic fantasy background where they're playing heroic kind of guys and, and girls and, 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 you know, uh, you know, on, on equal footing with some of the monsters, um, to kind of, you know, if they if they if they come away kind of like you know not really having loved being all eaten by the the shoggoth in the first session, uh, and and don't want to play again, then clearly you know you need to find a a, a different route. So uh, I think Pulp Cthulhu is the route for that because that will give them tougher characters. They they you know they'll survive a bit longer. They'll, they'll still get eaten, but but they'll hopefully enjoy being it being done to them rather than straight away like in straight Cthulhu. Um, but yeah, that's probably my take. <laughs> Do you have any plans to update the uh, Mississippi University source book? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's kind of, it, it falls into that whole HP Lovecraft country kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it, it got to kind of fall into that. And I think it, 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 will, it will be partially covered in the Arkham book as it already is, but I think it obviously deserves its own, it continues to deserve its own book in that way. So yeah, we would look to revise that as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, so my question is about writing campaigns. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the tension between like the ease of writing in character background with regions that kind of are immediately tied into the to the world and the scenario versus like the character buy-in of creating their own characters right at the outset. That's a good question. Great question. Yeah. Um, from my perspective, I think pre-gens work very well when, you, uh, when you're doing a one-shot because then, as you said, it ties in their background with the story. So there's a lot more investment and there's that, um, the way I've heard it referred to is kind of that, oh shit moment as they go and look back in their background and think, this is what's going on, I suddenly uh, understand. With, with the campaign, I think it's, it would be an interesting way to start off if you had pre-gens from the start. Um, and then potentially go through the campaign. But logistic, this is where my logistic wheels start turning, is what happens when that character dies? What happens if they die at this particular point? Or if they die here? Lots of ifs and the buts and, um, come up. I think it would probably, at least for my mind, work better that characters brought, or players brought their own characters to the table for a campaign because they have more of that buy-in from the start rather than being slightly removed like a pre-gem would have um, at the start of a one-shot. But obviously it then... So you find where the ties come in later. If there was a way to make sure you had that longevity of play, that you could play that pre-gen all the way through the campaign, then 
yes, perfect, that, that would work fine. But it's, I think it has a few inherent flaws that means it might not quite work. Oh, this is where I have to take issue with you. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> I, I like including pre-gens because an awful lot of... I always like to try and make it as easy as possible for people who've never done this sort of thing before to have something they can pick up and go, oh, right, okay, so this is the sort of character who might get involved in this. It's almost a template. If you don't use them, you can at least look at them and go, oh, right, okay, so that might be useful. This is the sort of background. I love writing the backgrounds, actually, for the NPCs and the pre-gens. I get a great deal of um, enjoyment out of doing it. But I like to have them there as, as an idea base for people, um, as something that means that, you know, if, if people aren't quite sure what they should be doing, they can at least just dive straight in until they've got that confidence to create their own characters. And once you've got going and they, they know sort of what they're doing, they'll be able to hopefully create their own fun characters and, that are tied to the plot rather than just, oh, well, we're, we're, we're kind of in this place. We don't really know anything um, let's just randomly guess what might be quite helpful to have and oops we didn't get obscure skill you know um let's go find somebody else to do that for us kind of thing there is a bit of a halfway house there that i can think of at least one campaign where it suggests that we really want one of your characters to be a doctor because at one point you're going to get a letter that says we need to go to an i need to go to an asylum to talk to a crazy man so it at least gives you some hints as to what kind of um characters are or what skills are integral to, um, to the success of the campaign which i think it leaves it a bit more open and then yeah. the player can put their own spin on how to make that character yeah. that is something that we are as sort of as the way that you write campaigns has changed over the years, that is something that you, we are all including now. Is that we do certainly Children of Fear does, Masks does. We've got that sort of section. If you are bringing your own characters to this, here are useful skills, useful yeah. occupations, um, so that you know you're not leaving people who do want to create their own characters totally unsupported. Well, yeah, I, I don't think it should be. Um, I don't think it should be a game in itself in terms of guessing what characters to create for a campaign. I don't think it should be a game. I don't well, think it should be a gamble. I think you should. I think you should. It should be a collaboration between the players and the keeper to work. Determine this is this is what the campaign. This is you know. I'm not going to tell you all the secrets of the campaign, but this is a setup. These are the kind of characters that are going to be involved in it. These are one. These are the kind of people that are going to want to kind of be involved in it. The, you know, you, that's where you may talk about whether they're all member of a organisation or society, or if they, or if they have, have to be. You know, they're all member of the army, for instance, or or they are or, or doing a certain thing. Um, I think you know that's that's a collaboration that shouldn't be a guessing game because that's that's about tying the player investment into the campaign and the, and the more deeply you can do that, the better for everyone. Scott, you were going to say yeah, the same thing. Yeah, no, I was going to say as well. I mean, there's there's also some fairly big assumptions here about the type of campaign you're playing. Yeah. Um, if you're, uh, we're talking very explicitly here about published campaigns or preparing to run published campaigns, but it's a, a very very different story if this is something that you're writing and running for your own group. And um, you know, I think if you're doing that, you have. Uh, the opportunity, which I think you should seize on, to actually get the players to generate you know, bits of their own background and then use that as the basis you know, for a lot of cornerstones of the campaign. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the technique that I like using is sort of coming up with a premise for the campaign, coming up with a, you know, 
loose ideas for NPCs and factions and stuff like that. But then get the uh, the players to, like I say, create b brief backgrounds, motivations for their characters, and then just weave them all together into something. You know, look for NPCs in my background that I can replace with ones from theirs. And I, I and the thing is, you can actually do this a lot if you're willing to. You know, if you're happy to put in the work, um, you know, rewriting published campaigns. You know, if you're running something like Masks uh, and you've got you know a player who's come up with a, a pretty strong background for their character. You know, I mean, look at certain key characters from the Carlisle expedition, or you know, um, perhaps you know from from other locations and encounter, and just see. Well, actually, can I swap that that NPC out with this? And suddenly, you know, the the campaign is about those player characters. Yeah, I mean, I've got a strong feeling about Beyond the Mountains of Madness. I think, you know, why why can't the play the players play Starkweather and more? You know, why why can't they play them? You know, it might change their names or, but you know, whatever. But why can't they play the leaders of expedition? Wouldn't that be fun? You know, if it's an experienced group of players, experienced keeper, why can't they be that way? If it's a less experienced group, maybe they want to do it more, you know, more linear, like the the way it's written, um, and so they're a little bit more directed. Um, but you know, if not, why 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 can't they play those characters? So I think there should be you know suggestions and, and advice for doing that as well. So you know, I think you know the advice and guidance should be there if we, if it, if it's appropriate for depending on the you know the level of experience and and the you know the uh, the comfort of the the keeper in the group. I think for pre-gens or not and all that kind of thing. If that answers your question anyway. Can I just follow up on the pre-gen idea. Um, Find Yeah, one of the things we did in Masks was uh, when we were revising that, there were certain NPCs which were like, well, if the PCs died here, they could pick up that NPC because that NPC is already, they've already met that character and they're kind of woven into the plot. They're integral to the thing. Um, so there were some points when, you know, I think that, that kind of builds on what you're saying about having pre-generated NP, uh, pre-generated PCs ready to pick up. Hopefully that's a feeds into that. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I would say, is that uh, I think the answer is yes, but I think we call them NPCs normally, but I think you can switch, take out the N and call them a PC. Because, um, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt though to have, you know, the, the local sheriff or the, the, the local foreign attache who may be suddenly become involved because of the an incident where someone has died, and then in whose job it is to ask some questions of why this person has died that will interact them with the PCs and the plot, and suddenly they may become involved. I don't know that kind of thing. It's almost possible. In, in terms of Beyond the Mountains of Madness, which I ran, this is one of my absolute favorite campaigns. You know, I had the characters um, create secondary characters who are already on the expedition mm -hmm. or the competing one. And they can even play them during like, like moments where their principal character wouldn't be involved and so forth. And then when one of those characters dies, you have that, that transition sliding in there. 
Yeah, we, we did exactly the same thing when we played mm. it, and uh, we were playing two two investigators each, and yes, we, we sort of switched backwards and forwards. I mean, for, for each scene, it was sort of, yeah, this is the investigator I'm playing for this scene, and my other one, you know, I know is going off and doing this thing off screen. Um, but yes, they were always there in the background for when the inevitable happened. I was fortunate enough to be playing a group of scientists, so it's, you know, <laughs> they were very, very much happy. Cool. Any, any final question, anyone? Yeah. I have a question. You guys are playtesting. Are you playtesting in role, where you're kind of like visualizing a character? You get a feel for it? No, generally, do you mean, uh, so the question was, are we playtesting, like, just through chatting it over? Do you mean, are we playtesting through chatting it over, or are we actually playing it? Well, let's see your brainstorming. Yeah. And uh, so, well, this guy could probably do something. He says, well, maybe we'll give him a Scottish feel or something. I don't know Just chime in, uh, chime in some type of accent, just to try to get a feel of the play. Um, if I'm grasping your question, I think we're, we're actually, you know, we, the three of us, like Mike, um, Matt, Scott, and myself, we, we sit down and we kind of chat over the scenario and then we present it and, you know, we, we actually play it. So, you know, we're actually playing it as, as a, a regular group would play it, you know, and um, we kind of see what the experience is there. Um, and each of us will take a, you know, a, a different slant on it because every GM does. And hopefully we then feed back to each other and see what our experiences were. Does yeah. that answer your question or not? Kind of, just more for the humor end of it. Oh, okay. You know, because British humor usually when you guys get together. These <laughs> <laughs> American blokes, they might do this. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, no, so, no, okay, right, to answer your question then. <laughs> and, and now I understand what you're saying. Okay, so what, with any scenario design, there comes a point once you've written it and you're thinking and you're reading it over or you're playtesting it, you make, or as you're, in fact, when you're writing it, you have to make certain assumptions as in what are the players going to do at this point? And so you have to think about different types of players and different types of groups. And, you know, and there is that kind of classic, well, what would my bunch of mates from England do? Well, they would, they would they wouldn't go through the door, for an example. You know, they won't go through the door. After hearing the noise on the other side, they won't go through the door because they know full well I'll kill them when they do. <laughs> what, would the, what would the bunch at the convention game, a bunch of players I don't know, oh, they'd be a bit more risky. They, they, they'd kind of go, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll feel around the door and we'll, we'll just open it and we'll peek inside. You know, that, and you kind of have to kind of gauge different, different kind of groups and you try and find the middle ground and one that will suit most and then throwing a little bit of advice for the kind of two, two extremes. But so, so in a way, yes, do kind of consider variation to some degree, but not, you know, not to the, not whether, you know, what would a Scottish person do? No, let's go that far. And let, but, you know, what would you do, Scott? Oh. <laughs> As it were. Oh, I was, I was going to leap in with uh, one comment that when playtesting, I, I always have in front of my mind, I want to be that guy. I am the dick at the table who will try and derail your scenario to make sure I, I try and stress test it as much as possible. Like have been presented with an NPC, you know, like being presented with an NPC who's driving a bus that's uh, maybe a little bit antagonistic and shooting him in the head while he's doing 60 mile an hour because he tries to pull a gun on you. Yeah, isn't it, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> 
but I mean, the other thing we'll do as well is it, we'll play test. Uh, it, certainly, you know, what helps with me is that I'll play test stuff as well uh, using Google Hangouts and oh, do stuff online, which means I play with people from all around the world as well. So that it, it's not like I just have the cultural attitudes or the approach of, of my usual play group. I, I play, you know, play test these things with so many different people from so many different cultures that. Yeah, I'd like to think that you know, in the end, there aren't too many assumptions about. Yes, of course, this will what this is what they'll do, and then find out that say an American group would handle things in a completely different way. Cool. All right then, Brian. This is it. Then we got to we got to finish up. Go on. I'm just going to riff on that maybe a little bit. I've heard uh, other uh, folks say that when looking at a campaign or even you know an individual scenario, you think of of the campaign almost running itself. If the, if the PCs had never jumped in and tried to mess with it, what would happen? Like, what, what would go, how would this machine run without the intervention of the, of the, of the players, the, the play group? So maybe uh, it, it's not so much, I'm, I'm wondering, it's, it's not so much, or it's in addition to, maybe that's a better way to put it, instead of, you know, how would, you know, a lot of extensive play testing, there's also a sense of how would this engine run Yes. No, in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if no one stops them, Cthulhu will rise, the, the eclipse will happen tomorrow, and uh, the great gate will open. You know that's that. You know what what happens if they do nothing? You know if they fail completely. You know what what is that risk? I often I often find this actually just this is a really good tip for just even just a single scenario, let alone a campaign, is to is to ask yourself what is the threat? What what is the threat? What what is driving? What what do the 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 investigators? You know what what do they need to stop? You know, if they, if they, as you say, if they're not involved, if they walk away, what happens? And is it enough to make them want to stop it? Yeah, because if it isn't, then you kind of think, well, you maybe want to increase it up a bit to make sure they do. So, um, yeah, but thank you. Um, thanks, everyone. Um, thank you, Scott, Matt, Lynn, Paul. Thanks for coming. Uh, come and say us on the stand and uh, enjoy the rest of the calm. Thank you. Blasphemous tomes. <laughs>